From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned thought leaders, founders, and game changers committed to ideas, innovation, and entrepreneurship well executed. Our radio show and podcast illuminates the struggle, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes purpose-driven entrepreneurs and game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by executive producer of Stanford Athletics, Beyond the Champions, radio show, and principal of Podfather Media, Tom Dioro. Today, we're honored and uh, really excited to be uh, talking with Lynn Bolduck from FKBR, the law firm of FKBR. You can find them at businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Again, that's businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Lynn, thank you very much for being on the show. Lynn, as we talked about earlier, is if you have a quote or a, a, a mantra, so to speak, that uh, that doesn't have a, to guide you, but that it means or matters a much to you personally or professionally, we'd love to, your audience usually would love to hear uh, what it is. I do. It's by Eleanor Roosevelt. And the quote is, do what you feel in your heart to be right, for you'll be criticized anyway. In my profession, I have to give a lot of unpopular advice to my clients. They may not like what I have to say. And sometimes I have to make a choice between two very difficult decisions. So when that happens, I think about this quote. Because I have to realize they're not going to like it no matter what I say. So I have to do what I feel in my heart to be right. It's sort of like being the president of the country. You're not going to be popular with all the people all the time. Where did that come from, Lynn? I mean, we might be really going back. Where did that mean and matter so much to you in your life personally um, that obviously translated professionally? Well, you have to make the tough decisions. You have to make the tough decisions in your own life and in the lives of your clients. Because what I do, I mean, it deals with millions of dollars. It deals with the life of companies. It deals with the lives of the people in the companies. And it's incredibly important. So it's not easy. It's fun and challenging. But it's it's difficult. It's difficult for me. It's difficult for them. I've been doing this about 30 years now. And it's still a challenge and exciting, of course, but there's a lot of difficult decisions to be made. This morning, one of my clients called me up, and they're embarking upon an initial public offering. They have a big Wall Street investment banker, and the Wall Street investment banker called them this morning, and they priced the deal, and they were very happy with the price, but they have to make some changes to the valuation of the company. That means the company has to do a reverse stock split in order to get the valuation up. The president of the company is now going to lose control of the company if he moves forward with this. So he can be voted out. He can't control the company anymore. This is a huge decision. And so that just came up this very morning. And he called me up and he said, I have to do this in order to get my IPO done. Should I do it? So there you go. You've got to go back to Eleanor Roosevelt. Do what you feel in your heart to be right, or you'll be criticized anyway. And I told the president to move forward with it and lose control of the company because this is what he needs to do to move the company forward. 
not a very popular decision, but I think it was the right one. Wow. You know, it's really interesting. All of it's very interesting, but in particular, I'll touch on lives of people. Why is that really, really, it's your lives of people as professional and the, forget the money. It's the lives of human beings on both sides of it. And why, how do you, um, how do you even get there to, you know, that you're dealing with that? It's just incredible. Well, I deal, I represent companies. I don't really represent people, but you have to think about it because companies are only people. And this is their lives. I mean, this is what I do all day long. It's what you do all day long. And it's not just one person either, because then there's employees. You know, we enact stock option plans so employees can get stock options. They can get wealthy or they could lose it all. And to consider everything involved in, in some ways, and correct me if I'm wrong or maybe I'm reaching too much, but you're actually having to think for everybody. Not just your side of your existing client, but for the side of whoever they're working with. You're you're literally having to think for each and every brain and come up with a decision for all. Am I am I off or no? No, you're hundred percent correct. But how you approach how I approach it is I just have to think about the company. If I do what is best for the company, it will be best for everyone involved. So I can't really think about each individual. Because they all have their own desires and goals. They all have their own risk tolerance. So you just have to think about the company. And I've seen a lot of companies. And, well, one of the biggest tragedies of my career is I've seen way more companies fail than succeed. But I have learned what might be more helpful to get the company to succeed than to fail. And that's when I give my advice. That risk tolerance is there a mental uh, process that you go through to measure or uh, uh, to gauge the risk tolerance level of the, the principles of a company? It's a great question because I'm dealing with several IPOs right now, but two of them are very different. One of the CEOs, he just wants to get it done. So every time a twist in the road comes in, you need to do a reverse. You need to divest yourself of your stock. You need to do this. You need to lower the price. It doesn't phase him at all. The man can make a decision in a second because he just wants to move forward always. He's like, okay, so the underwriter just called up and said, we need to do a reverse stock split of three for one. Okay, what do we need to do to get it done? That's how fast this person makes a decision. On the other hand, I have... I don't know if the background makes a difference. That CEO is a real estate person. He does real estate development. Mm -hmm. And then on the extreme opposite end of the spectrum, I have a client who is a scientist and they are actually printing hearts. They are 4D printing hearts for pharmaceutical testing purposes and maybe someday implantation into humans. But he has mm -hmm. a very cautious approach to everything. He's a thoughtful person. A lot of this is surprising to him. He's not used to the world of finance. And so I have to be softer with him. He he got the call this morning and there's been so many calls since then. He, we're, we're, I was preparing for this podcast and he's calling me again. And I'm like, Steve, I got to talk to you later. <laughs> so everybody's different, just like in life. 
Is there a point or have you ever reached a point where there's a, not that you've seen it all, I can't think of a better word or description, but where you almost know where it's going from the onset with a client or even uh, even an adversary? All the time. Because deals have a life of their own, just like the stock market. And see, I'm industry agnostic in my practice. It doesn't really matter to me or to the bankers or to the deal what the underlying business of the company is. And that's surprising for a lot of people. But an oil and gas offering, a life sciences offering, pharmaceutical, real estate, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, the deal needs to get done. And it gets done, companies raise money by selling their securities. So it has to be attractive. Well, how is it attractive? A, because it's trending in the marketplace right now. Something that's interesting in my career has been it has followed what's attractive in the economy. Um, back in the day, we did a lot of dot-coms until the dot-bomb. We did a lot of real estate limited partnerships. Then it became life sciences. During the lockdown, it was real estate. And it's what's popular. The underwriters, the investment bankers, they call it sizzle. A deal has to have sizzle. And it yeah. has to be financially attractive. So... Investment bankers make companies go through a lot of gyrations to get the deals done. And it doesn't have anything to do with the business of the company. It has to do with the valuation, the price, and the sizzle. Wow. That's interesting. You're uh, somewhat, uh, say, agnostic for industries. But you and I talked before on, uh, before the podcast that you so graciously are now on is that even the podcasting offers a, a level of transparency of companies. If companies have a podcast to talk about their products or services, their clients and the problems and, and, and trends and solutions in there. Where do you see even this format that we're doing now that it hasn't really been done? The pandemic expedited this, the way we're communicating now. And, and, and what's your thought on that, this form of communication? pandemic and the lockdown changed everything in my business. We were working with a company beginning in 2018 to go public, and they were going effective, as it's called, January, February of 2020. And then the lockdown hit. Now, back in the day, the CEO and the executive management team would go on what is called a roadshow. And a roadshow is when the executive management team flies to New York City and they go out with the bankers to all the other investment banking houses on Wall Street and they give a presentation about their company to get the other banks and their customers, you know, interested in investing in their IPO. Well, that couldn't happen during the lockdown. So we had worked on this IPO for two years. We didn't know if it was still going to get done. The CEO did 67 virtual roadshow presentations, learned how to use Zoom, did all of that, time zone differences, everything, the IPO got done. That changed everything because now those roadshows, they are primarily virtual. All the presentations are virtual. All these sometimes older people, they all learned how to use Zoom and Microsoft Teams and all the platforms that we use. They didn't have to do that before. Some of them are resistant, but that's the way it is now. 
board meetings. Board meetings, I was flying all over the country to attend board meetings. I flew all the time, traveled all the time, but now I don't have to do that. I mean, for better or worse, sometimes it was fun, sometimes not, but I don't have to do that anymore. Board meetings are often held virtually, not always, but often. I actually have a CEO of a company and he moved to France. And so now everything's virtual and his company is located in the U.S. So it changed everything. And I like what you said about the podcast because, you know, after the IPO, companies need to market their company to keep market awareness up, to keep it attractive for investors, to provide information about the company because nobody really sits around and reads their SEC reports. So I think a podcast would be a wonderful platform for these companies now. Excellent. We're talking today with Lynn Boldug from the law firm of FKBR. For more information, feel free to visit them on their website at businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Again, that's businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Lynn, I want to touch on you know constraints. Constraints, obviously, with the law and, and and even the personalities you've talked about and their their risk tolerance and their expectations for their for the firms do constraints sometimes a little bit of a baited question but I'm curious do constraints sometimes actually create better opportunities constraints help companies to know what to do and how to do it and how to do the right thing. Going back to that quote we started with at the beginning by Eleanor Roosevelt, a lot of people are always looking for loopholes in tricks and games and things like that. Don't do that. There's rules, there's guidelines. This makes it easy. On my practice, I follow the regulations and it gives me a roadmap to help companies to raise money, to give investors good disclosure about these companies. These rules are not difficult to comply with. They're easy to comply with and we know what they are. Comply with them. That's helpful to the companies. They're not gonna get into trouble. And that's helpful to investors. They're gonna get good disclosure. So I don't really see them as constraints. I really see them as roadmaps. And these are in effect for private and public companies. There's more for public companies, of course, but private companies have them as well. And something that has been a sea change in my business was the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, also known as the Jobs Act, that came around in 2013. Since 1933, with the Securities Act of 1933, companies, private companies, could not advertise or conduct a general solicitation of their financings. They had to either get an investment banker to be interested in them and sell their securities or know a lot of rich people to invest. It's difficult for a startup because underwriters, they don't want to get in startups. They're too risky. And these, you know, scientists and other genius business people, they don't know a lot of rich people. They spent their life in a laboratory or selling real estate or something. But the Jobs Act is a rare piece of legislation that was unanimously approved by every member of Congress of every party, which rarely happens, but it was designed to help startup companies gain access to capital without investment bankers. Now, private companies can advertise their private 
offerings. These aren't public offerings on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, but this is a little company that wants to raise a million dollars, two million dollars, three million dollars to start up. They can put that offering on their website. They can be on a podcast with you and talk about their offering. They can call people they don't know. This never existed prior to 2013. So now a constraint that was in effect for, gosh, all those years, almost a century, is gone. So legislation is extremely empowering in my business, not restricting. Excellent. Thank you. Very well stated. Now, the other, another segue into that is like a pre, if I'm saying this wrong, correct me, pre-existing relationship, whereas a prospective uh, investor or or investor or someone who would like the company to invest in them needs to be, um, from my understanding, needs to be predetermined. Like if you subscribe to a newsletter or uh, you went on their website and filled out a form that constitutes uh, or listen to a podcast that constitutes like they showed interest in your company. Consequently, you're able to reach out to them. Is that correct? Or? It used to be, but you don't need it anymore. It used to yeah, be. That was the rule. You don't. Yeah, you don't need it anymore. Wow. Yes, that changes. Now, how does that do for your business? And more companies want to file for IPOs or you get more clients because they feel more uh, empowered, so to speak? would be this avalanche of customers new business coming in 2013 and there wasn't they were very slow to adopt it they were nervous about it and good for them for being cautious the early adopters of the jobs act allowances were what we call direct participation programs they were real estate and oil and gas those industries raised the most money under the jobs act initially Then other companies, more traditional sort of companies, what we call corporate finances, followed. And now it's completely acceptable. There's a lot of platforms available on the Internet that will post your offering documents. And now investors, little investors, not big investors, are able to go on the Internet, look at these offerings and participate in them, which is a wonderful thing. These opportunities were not available before other than to VC firms and institutional investors, not retail investors, you know, you and I. Now, of course, there are risks. These are private companies. Their stock is not traded. They're startups. But if you do want to dip your toe into the water, you can find these on the Internet now and participate. What's changed in your experience? I know you shared with us the uh, during the pandemic and how Zoom or online meetings significantly changed your business, not just from a travel, but from a time um, experience. What's changed or evolved in your uh, in your practice in the last, say, two or three years that uh, you know you're in re- you're really excited about? I'm excited about everything I do every day. I've been doing this thirty <laughs> years. I haven't been bored one day. I've been stressed out sometimes. But there is nothing more exciting that I can do in my practice than an IPO. It's sort of like giving birth to a child. I gave the example earlier. I started working on one company that wanted to go public in 2018. They didn't get to go public for two years. It took two years to get that done. But since then, they've done three more public offerings. So that's four public offerings. Right now, they're considering doing a spinoff 
when the CEO called yesterday and said, we want to do a spinoff, I was so excited because this is fun. It's new. It's different. Something else that's really exciting are the companies themselves because I see all kinds of amazing things. I represented a company that makes lasers. How do you make a laser? I had to go out to the company, put on a hazmat suit, go into a clean room, and look into a baby incubator. And in the baby incubator were crystals. You make lasers out of crystals. Who knew? Not, I don't know. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I love your, I love your enthusiasm as well. This is the uh, Innovators Show on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Lynn Bolduck from the law firm of FKBR. Their uh, website, if you're uh, interested in, in checking out, is businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Again, businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Uh, Lynn, share with us your... Uh, charity of choice and uh, why uh, why they matter and why it matters to you. I support a charity known as Working Wardrobes. It's a local charity in Orange County, California, and they provide business clothing to men and women who may not otherwise be able to afford the appropriate clothing to go on job interviews and get certain jobs. In addition to providing the clothing, they also have um, counseling, interview practice. Sometimes they do makeovers on people. But this is so empowering to people who may not have the clothing or know how to go about getting a job. It's absolutely life-changing. So people in the business world, if you have business suits you no longer wear, you can donate to them. And that's what they do with it. And it's so simple. But it's it's literally life-changing for these people. So that's why I support working wardrobes. Sometimes a person only needs a little bit of help to change their entire life. Well said. To find out more information of, from uh, Working Wardrobes, feel free to visit their website at workingwardrobes.org. Again, that's workingwardrobes.org. Lynn, the um, early adopters... Can you spot companies, or, or are you at liberty to share, that are candidates for an IPO? Every company is a candidate for an IPO if they go into it knowing what's involved. And I find often the opposite occurs for me. I will be introduced to a company, and well, here I'll give you a real-life example. Taser. You know the tasers that the police use to give people an electric charge and it sort of sets them out? I'm yes. in an organization called the National Investment Banking Association. And in this association, we see presentations of companies like Shark Tank on TV. And Taser appeared at one of our conferences many, many years ago. And we all sat there and looked at each other and go, that's never going to work. That's too much regulation, this will never go public. At the presentation, they actually tased an investment banker because one of the guys got up and he said, that doesn't even work, I don't believe it. And they said, well, come on up on stage and we'll try it. And they tased him flat out on the stage. 
But we're still said that's not that deal's never going anywhere. Oh, and we all know Taser now, the one of the most successful companies in this country ever. So whenever we see a company and we're a little bit, you know, skeptical about their, you know, future outlook, I always think, remember Taser. I definitely will. And on that, I don't know, if, again, if you're liberty to share company names or maybe just the experiences, um, can you share one where you knew they were kind of a winner out of the gate as well? Yeah. Without names, of course, or just you know, even the product, but just, you know, the dynamics maybe of what made you feel like, oh boy, this is a hit right out of the, right out of the recording studio. One of my best series of deals I ever did was for a startup life sciences company. They made sort of like a saline solution, but the saline solution was made with what they call hypochlorous acid. And it was really effective on healing open wounds. And I won't go into a lot of the details because I get to see a lot of pictures that, you know, are kind of making me queasy. But particularly with like diabetic foot ulcers, which won't heal. If they put the solution on, it had an incredible healing quality. That seemed like a game changer in that industry. And I saw the pictures of little rats and the whole bit. But we did three rounds of private financing for this company. We took them public on NASDAQ. It was about 2007 before the Great Recession hit. They're still on NASDAQ today. They're a wildly successful company with this product. So things that products or services that change the way we do things, you can sort of see that coming. This could be successful. All that being said, the biggest problem these game-changing companies have is raising money. The hardest thing they will ever do is raise money. It's not their business. They know how to do their business. They can do that. But I have seen so many companies fail, not because their technology didn't work or they didn't have good management teams. They couldn't raise enough money. So that's always the problem, even for the ones with game-changing technology. At what stage would you, can you recommend, suggest, or throw out an idea, would a company or an organization approach a legal firm like yours in your specific practice? Immediately, right when you want to start. Really? Yep, because one of the problems with the IPO I told you about that took two years to get it done, they didn't have a lawyer. They didn't have board meetings. They had no corporate governance. They couldn't get an audit done. They, it took two years of a lot of intensive, expensive legal work to get them all caught up. Conversely, if you consult with a lawyer just to form your company, I mean, there's a basic issue. Should I be a corporation or should I be a limited liability company? Guess what? Limited liability companies can't go public. So if you set it up as an LLC, a limited liability company, and you come to me two years later, I've got to convert you now to a corporation that's a liquidating distribution for tax purposes. You're going to have to pay a lot of money in taxes. It's ugly. But if you came to a lawyer in the very beginning, the lawyer would have said, well, do you plan on going public? If that's a possibility, you should form as a corporation. You know, and that piece of advice doesn't really cost anything. But the lack of that piece of advice costs you a whole lot of time and money down the road. I think people have an unfair impression of attorneys sometimes. We don't want to just make money. We want to have our clients for a long time. 
in a lot of attorneys in my field, we know you're a startup. You have a budget. We need to work with you for that budget. It's not expensive to form a company. It's very inexpensive. It's not expensive to call me for 10 minutes and ask me a question that could be crucial to the life of your business. So start slow. Start small. Contact a lawyer. Ask a lot of questions. It won't cost you a lot along the way. And it can be so valuable, you know, if you want to grow. Lynn, what would you like to share with your audience uh, today that we may not have touched on? And so many things are just immensely valuable, but anything you can uh, think of right offhand that we haven't talked about? A lot, but I think I would sort of like to give a little advice to investors out there. Something that investors don't know are about IPOs, initial public offerings. IPOs get a lot of hype and investors may want to participate in them. IPOs are typically sold to institutional investors of investment banking firms. These are very large private funds onshore and offshore. These funds invest in the IPO right at the very beginning. And then they sell. These are quick turns for these institutions. So often the price of an IPO will drop shortly after the public offering happens. Therein lies the risk to the retail investor. You want to get in on an IPO, be aware that there's going to be a lot of selling by the initial institutional investors that will cause a decrease in the price. So be aware of that. Two other pieces of information for investors. All of the information about a public company is available to you at the Securities and Exchange Commission website, sec.gov. Go on there, type in the company name. You will see a ton of information about the company. Look at the financial statements of the company. I'm going to give you a quick lesson on how to read a financial statement. There's only three things you need to look at. Number one. Look at the balance sheet. How much cash does the company have? Do they have enough cash? Do they have no cash? Do they have a ton of cash? Are they going to need financing in the future? Number two, look at the income statement. Look at the bottom line. Are they profitable? It's called the bottom line for a reason. Sometimes in there, you'll see they're not profitable. They have a loss. And number three, read the notes. In the reports from the CEO or the chairperson of the board, you know, that's subjective. They're telling a rosy picture from their perspective. But the notes to the financial statements have the auditor's report. These are facts. The notes tell the story of what is really going on in the company financially. Look up their reports, watch out for IPOs, read the financial statements. And I also wanted to do a little sort of PSA, something that not a lot of investors sure. know about. Um, there is a agency called FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and they have a database called Broker Check. This Broker Check contains a report on every broker that is registered with FINRA, and they are required to be registered. 
Before you hire a broker or an investment advisor, go on BrokerCheck. It's brokercheck.finra.org and type in the person's name. Or they also have it for companies. Type in the name of the brokerage firm. You will get a wealth of information about this broker that you're interested in hiring. Do they have any, you know, dings on their record? How long have they been in business? How many jobs have they had? Very few people know about this, and it's a wonderful resource. So I just think that FINRA has not done a good job of advertising this, so I always mention it. I think it's really helpful to the public. Lynn. I can't. T- I'm so happy and excited to have talked with you. It was an absolute pleasure. I hope you would consider coming on uh, a show again, if not a- another show that we do, because I think it's just it, the value you provide and, and the the personableness of you is is that a word? Personableness. If it isn't, it, it's a new one. Is outstanding. So thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it, Lynn. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you again, Lynn. You've been listening to the Innovator Show at KZSU Stanford ninety point one FM. We've been talking today with Lynn Bolduck from the law firm of FKBR. To find out more information, if you're interested, feel free to visit their website at businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Again, that's businesslawyerorangecounty.com. Thank you for listening. The Innovators radio show and podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location. The audio engineer is Eris Chikopoulos and chief engineer Mark Lawrence. And the executive producer of The Innovators is Tom Dioro.